Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake McClure. Well, I will talk about such exciting things as mercantile exchanges and um, cryptocurrency collapse. Things that, to some people, are the definition of boring, hopefully will be um, slightly fun, at the very least, during this episode. I've got some questions hanging out here. Um, so we'll talk about a lot of this other stuff in the, in the very near future, but I am going to give precedence to our most faithful questioner, Inquisitor John, who, as is tradition, has sent an email to us of a digital picture of the paper version of the Wall Street Journal. Um, so the digital to analog to digital has occurred it's still alive and well. Don't let it go away. Um, his article that he's sending this time is CFOs ramp up hedges against a stronger dollar. His question is, how do currency hedges work? So um, as is tradition, I'm going to answer with history rather than give an easy answer. <clears throat> All right. Hedges are large bushes that separate fields. And they also work well at preventing floods. What does that have to do with finance? Well, if you put a hedge in, it's to prevent your sheep from wandering to another field. It's a fence. And when you're hedging something, you're trying to prevent the values that you know of from becoming values that you don't know of. So what is a good example of this? Back in the mid-1800s, early to mid-1800s, Chicago was one, to, one of the centers of trade in grain for the world. It still is, but at a lower amount. Chicago, yeah. Chicago was a booming, relatively new city at a juncture of a bunch of lakes and a bunch of canals, which were the easiest and best ways of transporting things. The railroads had not made big inroads yet. So Chicago is the center of grain trade for the world. And in order to sell your grain, if you're a farmer, in Chicago, you got to get it to Chicago. That's not a minor thing. You have to pay money to get it put on a barge, and then you have to pay the barge and the crew of the barge to get it to Chicago. Then you have to find a buyer for it in Chicago. It was a very chaotic market. The telegraph existed, but it was not in, in high use yet. There weren't railroads for it to follow. So it was a very short distance communication method. We're still talking about post traveling by wagon or by horse. So when you showed up to market with a barge full of grain, this is how people began the trade. And there were fewer merchants than there were farmers. And for... The season, which is very interesting here, the demand for grain is split across the entirety of the year, but the purchase of grain takes place once a year, right after harvest, sometimes twice a year if the harvests are good. So how do you, if you're a farmer, how do you take that risk of loading up that barge and sending all your grain there? And what if you're a, a week late? What if all the grain's already been bought that is going to be bought? And that was a problem. A lot of people were dumping 
uh, grain into the Great Lakes, into Lake Michigan, because it costs too much to take it home. This is not good for grain, because in December, when they need the grain that you just dumped into the lake, it's going to be really expensive, but you don't have it anymore to sell it. So this was a problem. And in 1848, a group of merchants that bought grain got together and said, hey, let's do kind of an auction type setting where we're all in the same spot. Instead of the farmer has to show up and try to find one of us to, to buy their grain, let's put it all in one spot and do kind of an auction for it. And so they started that. This was 1840-ish. They started this conglomerate of merchants got together and kind of mutually auctioned it. In 1848, they said, let's do it even better. And we're not really sure who came up with this idea. It was probably off the cuff, but it changed the history of how things are bought and sold for everyone. Um, a blackboard was brought out into the auction, and someone said, I'll buy next year's grain from you at a price, and I'll commit to it. And I'll write it on this board this blackboard with chalk. And that will mean next year when you come back, it'll still be written there. And that will be our contract. And I'll buy you, I'll buy next year's grain from you today. And that's a hedge because some years the merchants would go to buy grain and there wasn't enough. So the price would go through the stratosphere. And some years there was too much. And so the farmers would suffer from it. So the futures market was born. And it was called the Chicago Board of exchange for the blackboard. Yep. The blackboard is how the commitments for over a year were kept with chalk. And if there wasn't enough room on the blackboard, they got another blackboard. Eventually, they made contracts, individual contracts, but they still posted the prices and the commitments of who it was that was buying and selling in advance because it was part of the way you made sure that the trade actually took place. And somebody said, I'll give you money today for your crop in a year. I'm going to pay you less than the going rate, maybe, or whatever you negotiate. They might say, I'll pay you today's price next year. So that's how hedging was born. Um, when we're talking about currency hedges, and the article that, that uh, Inquisitor John sent, um, the section he's got circled. It says, finance executives at large U.S. companies, including beverage giant Coca-Cola Co. and material science company Dow Inc., are increasing their foreign currency hedges and covering longer periods as the strong dollar continues to take a toll on earnings. What does that even mean? Um, big companies, Coca-Cola, Dow, are hedging their currencies. Why? Because they're doing business in Europe and in Asia, and in South America, and in North America, in Canada. And when you make a profit in Canada, but our currency, the dollar-to-dollar -dollar exchange rate, Canadian versus American, or United Statesian, um, that, that can take all your profit away if the currency shifts strongly. So, for instance, if you're doing business in Europe right now, the euro is running right at parity with the dollar. And it has a tradition of being more like a dollar thirty. So if you made a bunch of profit in euros and then convert them back to dollars, you didn't make any profit. You had a big drop in the value of what you were selling. If you leave the money in euros, it's the equivalent of not losing that money, but you still have to report it 
on your earnings statement with the currency shift. So how do you hedge currency? The easiest way to do it is just to buy euros or to buy dollars. Now, that is right now prices. So if, if the euro is down against the dollar and you think that the dollar is going to fall back to where it was or the euro is going to rise up to where it was, buying a bunch of euros with, with, the, with the dollar is a fantastic way of buying the dip in the euro. That's not how most hedging is done, but that is the simplest form. How most hedging is done is relatively complex, but there's this simple way of looking at it. In effect, you're swapping bank accounts, not the control of the bank accounts. But say you have a, a deposit on a bank in Germany, and, and a company in Germany has that, and they want to do something in the United States in seven months. And then there's a company in the United States that wants to do something in Germany in seven months. They've got dollars. The Germans have euros. And they say, hey, in seven months, why don't we make this exchange at today's rates or whatever rate they, they come up with? Let's just say dollar for euro, one for one. Easy enough. You get the rights to all the interest in our bank account and we get the rights to all the interest in your bank account for seven months and then we'll just trade the assets. And that's the most common way of doing a hedge on a currency. Somebody in another place wants to do business where you are and you want to do business where they are and you don't want to worry about what the currency might do between now and then, the specific exchange rates between your two com countries. So you make a deal to say, hey, at least we'll know if we do it today. Now, there's a potential that you'll make a lot of money by waiting to the last minute and getting it then, but there's also a potential you'll lose a lot of money. And if your business is in selling soft drinks, um, then you don't want to be into currency risks. You want to be into let's make money selling soft drinks or bottled water or whatever that is, and you know how to make a profit there. There's a lot of luck that goes into currency exchanges. So that's, that is the, the easiest answer on how swaps happen for currency. Now, they're usually done in a much more complicated way than an account for account. Um, there's exchange-traded funds that carry the currency at the futures rate that you can buy now. There's, there's a lot of relatively complicated ways to do it, but that simple concept of just an exchange of bank accounts where you're getting interest on the bank account in Germany and they're getting interest on the bank account in the United States. And then you trade the accounts. The actual value in the account gets traded at the end of the period. Uh, and I realize it sounds complicated, but the reality is that it's a really decent way to ease trade across borders when you have merchants that are talking to each other directly, a software company talking to a soft drink company, if you will, and they may have an exchange happening. Now, usually it's so diversified that you don't know who's on the other end of the trade because it's thousands of people and their money's all mixed together into a big pot. But that, that's a pretty decent example of how currency ex exchanges actually work, what they really mean. Um, John also says... Uh, in this next email, uh, and I'm, I believe that there is a lot of tongue in the cheek in this one, uh, buy the dip. My friend's financial advisor, Bernie Madoff, recommends buying crypto on the recent dip. And there's three exclamation marks on that one, so it's very emphatic. 
Um, and I have a lot to talk about on crypto this week. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. Um, there are uh, quite a few crypto exchanges out there, which is the opposite of the original white paper on what a cryptocurrency is. A an exchange is a centralized place to make a trade. We were just talking about the Chicago Board of Exchange and how they centralized the auction. Instead of going out and finding a merchant on your own, let's have the auction in one spot. And cryptocurrencies originally were peer-to-peer. -peer. Everybody's on a network, so anybody can trade with anybody on the network, which is nice. That's a really easy way of moving money around. But the only way to make sure that somebody had it was that everybody's watching everybody else's accounts. And they're encrypting the blocks of those ledger books uh, to make sure that it stays as it was. We know you have money in your account and I have money on my account and everybody can see that. The problem with that is you got to wait for each block to get encrypted and sometimes that can take a day, sometimes it can take a week. Um, they're supposed to make the algorithm, which is the silly puzzle that you solve to encrypt a block that has nothing to do with its encryption. Don't get me started on that, man. There's not a lot of logic behind it. Um, it takes a while sometimes to encrypt a block, which means that whatever transaction you're doing may take a while to close. And the idea of a digital currency is that you could move it instantaneously from one place to another. But if it takes a long time to make sure that the block of trades is really secure and nobody can change them, then they don't happen overnight or in the split second. They happen over a week. So some people got together and said, oh, we have a solution to this. We're going to centralize it. You recall that white paper that began cryptocurrency. The whole concept was decentralization, to get it away from governments, to get it away from regulators, to get it away from anybody that didn't have business knowing what you were doing. Well, now exchanges pop up. But exchanges of things that people all agree nobody has business knowing what we're doing. So it's a new form of exchange, even though this is exchanges of financial assets have been around for a long time. This is a new one, so it has to be redefined. And um, we've, we've had lots and lots and lots of scandals in these exchanges. Mt. Gox back in 2016, if you recall, big hacking scandal where the exchange was hacked and hundreds of millions, now billions of dollars was stolen. And the FBI had a lot of trouble pursuing anyone on it. Why? Well, because it was supposed to be all anonymous, and everybody that was involved wanted it to be anonymous, and they didn't want regulators involved until they had their money stolen from them, or their crypto stolen from them. It wasn't really money yet. Um, so it's a form of exchange and financial transaction. We, we often have new kinds of financial transactions that come up that lack regulations and then we have this big big enough scandals will cause the government to say well we have to regulate that because all of our constituents are complaining about people stealing their money these same people are the people that said we don't we don't want the government to know what's going on that's why we're buying what we're buying but as soon as they get stolen from they really want somebody to get prosecuted for it you shouldn't steal that's the conundrum of crypto. 
I had a conversation about this back in June with you all on the air. I spent a long time talking about how when several big exchanges go down is the point with the, when the U.S. government will start to regulate these exchanges. We've now had two big exchanges go down. The last, last, last one, man, uh, massive, massive amount of money at stake here. Um, and I'll kind of go back through this year alone, um, the issues that we've seen in this crypto crash. Um, so back in February, some game happened. The this, this super something or another, some kind of a bowling event, I think. It's a super bowling. Um, and evidently the ads for this particular sports event are expensive. And uh, four crypto agencies bought big ads. Coinbase, FTX, eToro, and Crypto.com. Now, after that, Coinbase became one of the um, most downloaded apps on the app markets for both Google and for Apple. Then um, in April, the SEC announced that it would begin to put regulations on crypto agencies um, that are setting the stage out there uh, for what is a security. And we went over this on the air with you. If there is a third party that has some kind of control of the outcome of the value of what you're buying or selling, then that's considered a security. So if you buy a gold coin, there's no third party that can change that value. I mean, other people that you buy or sell from can do it. It's just party one, party two. If there's a third party that controls that value, like a company that you're buying ownership in and they lose money or they make money, this, the SEC considers that is a security and needs to be regulated. I think that makes sense. If you buy somebody's computer and you sell that computer, that's not a security. But if you buy something that someone else says, when we make a profit next year, this will be worth more, that's a security because somebody else has an input in the value. Okay, so that's the, the rule that the SEC follows. Now, is, is it a valid rule? Is it, I don't want to get into the ethics or what, uh, of it. It's just the rule that they use. The Securities Act of 1933 made it pretty clear what a security is. And so that's the definition that they've come up with to say we're following the Securities Act. So the SEC's now back in April saying there's a whole bunch of these that are more related to who's managing a company for the value. Oh, man, got knocked off the air again. Hey, I keep getting knocked off. Do you know what's going on? Was it just now? Okay. Uh, yep, I'm ready. And we keep having drops. So I'm back on the air. Um, the SEC says they're regulating crypto. That caused a lot of issues in the crypto world, a lot of them. Um, the, the BitMEX became the first crypto agency to announce layoffs. They did 25% of their staff got laid off in May. Uh, I mean, sorry, in, in April, right after the SEC said we're going to start regulating. Um, Federal Reserve started raising interest rates and stopped buying bonds on the market, started selling them. And I'm back. I guess I'm on the air now. <laughs> um, I, I had been talking before uh, being so rudely interrupted. Um, the SEC started regulating crypto. 
Um, the SEC started regulating crypto in April. And then at the beginning of April, right after that announcement, you start having layoffs across the crypto world. Bitmex was the first one um, to lay off. They laid off 25% of their staff. Come forward to May, the Federal Reserve starts raising rates, starts tightening by selling bonds back into the market instead of buying them, which causes less money to be out there. So people start selling assets. We saw it in the stock market and we saw it in the crypto market. Assets started getting sold. So prices start down. Um, it, Coinbase in May had its, it's, it's a publicly traded company was down 80% from their peak in May. And they said if they go bankrupt, people could lose their funds. Um, and then they came back and said, but we're not at risk of bankruptcy. But the reality is that people had thought before that that maybe if they went bankrupt, they'd get their money back. But that's just not the way bankruptcy works. So they announced that. Um, then uh, June, uh, Celsius Network, I, we talked about this at the time, it's a crypto exchange, a big one, um, said nobody was allowed to get any money out. Uh, Bitcoin went down 15% on the following day. Ethereum came down about the same amount. Uh, layoffs were across the crypto world at that point. Then still in June, um, the stablecoin from Tron uh, lost its peg to the dollar. So people were promised that, hey, you put a dollar in, you get a dollar out. Well, it's not true. So Tethercoin wasn't pegged. A stablecoin is not at $1 to $1 now. Still in June, Bitcoin dropped below 20000 uh, A big crypto lender in June froze withdrawals. That's Babel. Um, Coinflex then immediately paused withdrawals uh, because they said, that there was a counterparty that had liquidity issues. Three Arrows Capital, which is a hedge fund, which isn't, you know, it's a cryptocurrency hedge fund, but it's a hedge fund, uh, said we can't pay our loan to uh, Voyager Digital, uh, another a cryptocurrency broker. So this is $670 million. Um, FTX announced they'd acquire BlockFi in June. So FTX says, we're going to go out, we've got money, we'll go out and save this other company. Um, you just keep coming down. Three Arrows, which declared bankruptcy then. These are the ones that they defaulted on one of the loans. They declared bankruptcy. Uh, then a whole bunch of companies, Genesis, Blockchain, said, hey, we've got a bunch of loans that we made to Three Arrows, and Three Arrows can't pay. Then uh, the Financial Stability Board, which is a, uh, it's an international body that monitors um, different trades, uh, said that crypto must be subject to effective regulation and oversight uh, because of the risks that they pose. So people are starting to call for regulation in a broad way. Um, the Southern New York U.S. Bankruptcy Court, um, Three Arrows gets in there, uh, they say the whereabouts are of the founders are unknown. So the people that started this company that has defaulted on now billions of do dollars of loans disappeared. So we can just keep on going. It's been a bad, bad year. Celsius Network in July declared bankruptcy. Um, Skybridge Capital in July froze withdrawals. Uh, Vald filed for protections against creditors, the equivalency of bankruptcy. Um, we can just keep on going down. Now FDX has declared bankruptcy. They are defunct. 
what's happening here? What is this? Well, you have a new asset type that we all say, hey, this is worth something because I want to buy it and you want to buy it. So we can use anything that we want as a, as a definition, a trading card or a, a, a Pokemon or a, a, a Teletubby doll or any, a Cabbage Patch kid from when we were, from my childhood. And everybody agrees this is worth a whole bunch of money. And at some point, people go, well, I can't really use it for anything. Or I need to get money from it now. And I, when I took it to market, I got a lot less than I expected, which causes everybody else that's holding the Teletubby doll or the Cabbage Patch Kid to try to go and sell it before they lose everything. And that causes the market to crash. When you have something that doesn't build value, it doesn't create anything, why should you expect to make a profit? And that's a question with a lot of validity to it. If you don't know what value a thing creates and you want to make a profit on it by selling it later, the question is, why should you make a profit? Uh, Warren Buffett says this. It's basic, basic common sense. If, if you buy a gold coin, you can make a profit on a gold coin. Some, a lot of people have made profits selling and buying gold. But why should you make a profit if you haven't changed that gold in any way? You just bought it, and now you're selling it. Now, if you understand the market well, and you think there's a pretty good chance that somebody's going to want to buy it for more than, than I bought it for, that's kind of like arbitrage. You understand the market. And a lot of people in crypto were like, well, I understand the market. My answer to that is, no, the market's only been around for less than a decade. Nobody understands that market. Gold market has been around for thousands of years, and it still has weird fluctuations that nobody can explain. Crypto isn't established enough as a market, and there's always these new cryptos being introduced. So what does it mean? Why are all these bankruptcies occurring? Well, the answer is that a lot of these companies took out big, big loans using their own cryptocurrencies as collateral for the loan. And then when another company comes to them and says, we need a payment from you in dollars for the loan, they don't have it if the collateral has dropped in value. And when we're looking at FTX in their bankruptcy, FTX and about 130 affiliated companies all declared bankruptcy on the same day. Same founders, same owners, Many of those 130 companies were market makers on the exchange that were owned by the same people that owned the exchange. What's a market maker? Well, they're in a traditional exchange. If you're buying peanuts, somebody says, I'll buy peanuts even though I don't have the need for the peanuts just in case somebody later on wants to buy peanuts. And I don't want peanuts to drop in price so low because there's no buyer. So they're called a market maker. And in most traditional exchanges, all traditional exchanges, the market makers are not allowed to be affiliated with the exchange. They're not allowed to be tied together with, with their assets to say, like in this case, Alameda is a big market maker on FTX. They're owned by the same people. They're trading the same currency. This looks a lot like Enron when it was making loans to itself and taking the interest on that loan and telling everybody, look how much money we're making. Well, that's happening again, and it's going to happen again in the next thing that comes along, and it'll happen again the next thing after that. This is a tradition in the financial markets to create something, to think it's brilliant, even if it doesn't have value to back it up, 
to use it as collateral for bank loans because you convinced everyone that it has value and then not be able to pay the loans back. This happened with the tulip bubble. It happened with railroad bonds in the 1870s where everybody wanted to sell a railroad bond for every kind of railroad that existed, even if those railroads didn't have any rail cars or tracks that belonged to them, but they were a railroad company. Bitcoin is the most common referred, commonly referred to cryptocurrency. It holds its value only in the same way anything else would if people are willing to pay that value for it. And I think enough people are in a place where they're looking around in Europe, in Asia, in elsewhere, in the United States, big tech companies are laying off. Who are the big purchases of cryptocurrency in the United States? Well, generally tech employees. They have a need for cash because they got laid off. So they're selling assets. And they were the ones that were buying the assets to keep the price up. This is how Madoff failed, by the way. You know, he's, he's paying his Ponzi scheme out. New money comes in. He's paying it as earnings to the people that have been there all along. And everybody's great. You're making this great 12% a year return every year, up or down with the rest of the market. They're making 12% a year. But then the market dropped on everything else. And other people started losing jobs, and so they needed to make some liquidations from this fund. And there wasn't money there to back it up. In essence, it was a run on the bank, and the bank didn't have any reserves. They'd given it out to other people. That's the nature of a Ponzi scheme. In the crypto world, it's not a Ponzi scheme because there's technically a product that people are buying and selling. But once people decide they need money for that product because they need money, there's just not a lot of people out there willing to buy at the crunch point. The market makers are all wrapped up with the currency or the crypto exchanges. So you have real problems here. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the Personal Wealth Coach being our title. The Personal Wealth Coach is not just the title of the program, it's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. All right, well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is a professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right, that is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on, this in, on this station, 1400 AM in Temple, since 1996. We've been doing this a long time, and... We haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if 
the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think right. uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's general portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at 254-947-1111. You can reach that line tool free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.